The following podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. We advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our research, to listen to our podcasts, and to watch our videos, please visit hoover.org. Welcome to Economics Applied, Episode 4. Today's episode features a wrap-up conversation between Kevin and Steve. They take stock of key points and lessons learned about the global commonwealth in Episodes 1 to 3. Their conversation took place on 15 January 2020. Kevin, let me, let me start with what I see as four high-level takeaways um, from our discussions. And you, 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 of course, should feel free to jump in and interrupt and add and contradict at any moment. Uh, so the first thing I took away from, from Condi's discussion um, is the specialness of the uh, time period uh, in the early years and decades after World War II that really um, made it a propitious moment in history to uh, create an opt-in commonwealth. Um, and there's, there are two, two main things there. One is that the horrors of World War II were fresh in the minds of, of political leaders and, uh, of course, of, of voters and, and the electorate. Um, and that, that gave great impetus to the whole commonwealth enterprise. Um, again, I'm using Condi's term here. So that's kind of part of it. But the other part was that the U.S. was then, more than now, um, an economic and technological superpower uh, on the global scene. And and that gave the United States, working with its allies, uh, the clout uh, needed to create the uh, institutional underpinnings of a global commonwealth and kind of perform the coordination function of of setting up the institutions that would provide these public goods and uh, that... uh, um, Robert Steger and, and, and others talked about. So that was kind of the first key point that I took. Um, the second is that the Commonwealth fostered prosperity in the United States and uh, many other countries around the world. Basically, the opt-in system worked. It was far from perfect, but it, it worked. The, the idea of a kind of a cooperative enterprise uh, towards solving international public good problems worked a lot better than the uh, authoritarian, imperialistic approaches um, that had been tried in the past. The third, the third key point I took away, and kind of coming more to lessons for the current day, is that I, I see, and I think our, our guests see it the same way, uh, the WTO, the IMF, and other Commonwealth-like institutions as positive legacies we've inherited from the past. Um, they're highly imperfect uh, to be sure, but they, they facilitate positive some economic uh, relations uh, among countries. And uh, going back to point one, recreating these institutions from scratch uh, would be very hard, if not impossible. So we should probably uh, try to make do with these legacy institutions, make them work better, but not, not simply uh, discard or undermine them because they're imperfect. And I guess that, that kind of brings me to the last key point that I took away and Condi uh, uh, talked about this a fair bit towards the latter part of her conversation, and that is uh, support is weakened for the idea, uh, perhaps the idea of a commonwealth in general, but certainly for the idea that the U.S. should serve as the primary guardian of a global commonwealth. Um, There might be some logic to that, but then you have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? No global commonwealth, a kind of return to... Um, transactional relationships on a bilateral basis among countries or efforts to impose um, some type of system that preserves uh, 
international public goods. That doesn't look very attractive. Condi made the point that a Chinese-led international system doesn't look very attractive and is not likely to be anything like the system we've enjoyed in the post-World War II system uh, era, I should say. And then last, uh, a European-led system just seems totally infeasible to me, given the governance uh, struggles that uh, the EU and uh, already has. So that, those, that, there's lots more in the discussion of that, but that's that's what I tried to. That's what I took away as the four most important points. Yeah, I think I think those are pretty much the main points, and and I'd like to talk a little bit, particularly about the first two. Uh, that you brought up before turning to the others. And one was kind of the unique situation and, and in some sense the unique role that the U.S. played in, at that point of uh, really fostering the development of this global commonwealth. And there's kind of a temptation to think of kind of the U.S. acting in some kind of benevolent way that they sacrificed what they could have had on their own to promote the broader welfare of the world, and you often hear people talk about that in terms of you know helping Europe and give you know as if that we lost in that trade, and and I, I think that is not really the, what how it worked out. Like you said, it really worked, but it not only worked to help Europe recover, help Japan recover, and really help the world um, grow a lot faster and better and, and develop better institutions. But it didn't do that at the expense of the U.S., that a, 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 an improvement in the rest of the world and in terms of a rapid recovery and growth of their economic prospects really helped the U.S. do far better than they would have uh, under some alternative. And, and that's not surprising as an economist because we often think that, you know, there are lots of gains from trade, and those gains of trade happen uh, when you trade, you know, goods and services. What I'm good at, I export to you, and I import from you what you're good at. But there are a lot of gains from trade and policy, and, and that was an important part of what Condi and our other guests talked about, that, you know, Kevin, the idea just, of mutual benefits isn't limited to trading goods. It's also on the policy front. Well, yeah, but that's what I And all, what about ideas? I think a part of the, um, the benefits that, that flowed back to the United States from the Commonwealth Enterprise is, other countries began pushing out the frontier, uh, first in Europe and later in Asia, pushing out the technological and idea frontier, and and ideas spread globally uh, over yeah, time. I so. think it, even even also even just implementing the ideas that we had. I mean, the fact that you know the, the economies of Asia and, and and Europe and maybe Europe first and later Asia were able to take advantage of technologies that the U.S. or Europeans or others had developed, um, ultimately benefited us as well, because those economies getting stronger and getting wealthier, uh, you know, it allows us to do better than we would otherwise. And But it brings up another point, is why it doesn't undermine the unique period, because even though acting in this way, kind of taking advantage of mutual gains is probably going to benefit me as much as it benefits you. Uh, it's not always politically easy to do that. And I, I think that's a problem we have today. It, you know, it's, it's probably in our interest today to still kind of act in a more cooperative way with the rest of the world. It's not always politically easy to do. And I, I think that's one of the things, you know, the position the U.S. had at the time 
allowed the U.S. to do. They, you know, they were in a position where they could go down this road, and it's, you know, it was a nice road to go down because, like I said, it allowed us to really help the rest of the world develop in a way that didn't really, at the end of the day, cost us and probably benefited us rather substantially uh, at the end. Um, and that's going to be a theme, I think, that came up throughout the things we've talked about, which is, you know, even things that are good for your country to do may often be politically difficult. And um, that came up in, in some of Steger's discussion of, of trade liberalization and things like that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would emphasize is that the idea that Condi laid out, the kind of global commonwealth, was not so much a prescription for what everybody should do. It wasn't a grand plan for the world to achieve a better state. It was more of a framework where we had the institutions in, in, a, in a situation that allowed countries to work together in a way that would benefit, mutually benefit the two of them. Sometimes because the policies were, you know, wouldn't have otherwise been possible, and sometimes really to help them on the political front. So, um, again, I think her term, global commonwealth, is a really good one for describing the kind of institutions we're talking about, because it's very much a system built on a framework that allows people to engage in those kind of mutually beneficial policy changes, maybe Maybe it's trade liberalization, and maybe it's tech, you know protection of intellectual property or transfer of capital or intellectual property and the like. Right. I so I guess there's I'm I'm still uh, back on this thinking about how it is that the Commonwealth fostered prosperity in the United States, um, not just the rest of the world. And uh, one one thing we didn't mention, but maybe we should, is the role of scale economies. I mean, when you think about the kinds of digital goods we use now in our iPhones and things like that, it's, it's unlikely that those products would be as good or as well-developed if there weren't a global market for them. And th- this point's a little bit different than, the, I think, the points we made earlier. So I- at least we made explicitly. We had, you made the point in a broad way about we're, we're, all, we're better off if the rest of the world, if our trading partners are wealthier. But part of it has to do with the scale economies that allow certain goods to be much better than they would otherwise in a, in a smaller market. And I think that's, that seems to me to be part of, the, part of how the U.S. benefited from the Commonwealth as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I would say some of the technological transfers, we, we tend to think that if, you know, technology is transferred from us to someone else in the world, that somehow we've lost it, you know, that their gain comes at our expense, and, and sometimes it does. I'm not saying that would never happen. But them having a better technology allows them to produce more goods and produce them more cheaply. And ultimately that can benefit us, particularly if we take advantage of the trade opportunities that arise from that. So, um, again, you know, economics teaches us constantly that the world's not a zero-sum place, and and... I think that was one of the big lessons of this global commonwealth, that it didn't have to be a zero-sum place, and, um, and that's true on, you know, when it comes to technology, that's true when it comes to trade, that's true when it comes to lots of different aspects, whether it's capital flows or other things. That there's a lot of room for both 
parties to gain on all those types of transactions. Not to mention the kind of side benefits that might come by, you know, having a great tighter relationships that foster security and other things that Condi mentioned in her in her discussion. Right. So on on this framework point you made, which which is a good one and I agree with it, let me let me ask you about a specific aspect of the GATT WTO framework that we've chatted about offline and where I think there's some important points that that uh, maybe you can make on tape. And that's the kind of distinction, the, the, the GATT WTO concept of reciprocity, first difference, reciprocity, and tariff, tariffs. And I think you and I are both of the mind that the political logic of the, of the GATT WTO framework makes a lot of sense. It's been successful historically, but it's but there's some unfortunate side consequences of how it has encouraged people to think about tariffs from an economic perspective. And I, I wondered if you could just explain that. And there's a, there's a there's a sense of discomfort both you and I have with uh, the GATT WTO concept of reciprocity. Yeah, let me talk. Let me talk about two aspects. One of which I think we both have some comfort with, and the other is. I think the source of our discomfort. And on the comfort side, I think we both realize that, you know, the GATT and really economics tell us that freer trade often will be a benefit even if we can't get to, you know, maybe the ideal of what we call, might call free trade. And that might mean that, you know, we go from, you know, le- you know, a certain level of tariffs to a lower level than we have, and the other party goes from a high level to a lower level. So we're both lowering tariffs. Doesn't mean we end up at the same place. So it, you know, and I, I think people often get confused and say, "Well, geez, how is this a fair agreement? They're not equal to us in where we ended up." And Steger, I think, was very good at sort of explaining mutual gains doesn't require that we end up in the same place. It's really that we both move in the same direction. Mm-hmm. Now. That, but there's also a misconception embedded in that logic, and that's the logic that I benefit when you reduce your barriers and you benefit when I reduce mine, but that when we each reduce our own barriers, we're giving something up. And I, I think that is a political reality, that that's how it's perceived, that if the other person isn't going to open his markets, my God, why in the world would I want to open mine? Because I, after all, don't I benefit from the tariffs that keep his goods out? And I think as an economist, we're both very uncomfortable with that logic in the sense that we feel like, no, you probably the biggest gains, and maybe even the bigger gains you get, is actually by lowering your own tariffs. It really opens your markets and allows your consumers to take advantage of lower price goods that they can buy on the market uh, and, in, in fact, benefit at least as much as you do by the ability to export more when the other party lowers their tariffs. And so on, a, on an economic basis, you might say, well, geez, isn't it good to lower my tariffs even if the other guy won't lower his? And the answer probably right. is in many cases yes. Uh, but two things. One, politically, that might be very difficult to do. That is, at home, you might not be able to sell that. So the GATT gives you a framework to give you some political cover for doing something that may be in your own interest, but at least you can motivate why you're doing it by as an inducement to get him to lower his barriers. Right. I think that's one. Secondly, 
if I'm going to lower my tariffs, which is a benefit, if I can use that as leverage to get him to lower his tariffs, then even if I didn't have the political argument, that kind of linkage might be a good idea. So the GATT framework, which thinks about moving toward freer trade in a reciprocal manner, probably is a good system for getting things done. I think it is a little misleading in terms of where the source of the gains come from. But again, I, you know, we live in a world where political realities are the real realities, right? That is, right. you can talk all you want about what's a great idea. If you can't get it done, it's not a good idea. It just, it, yeah, it's exactly. a good idea on paper, not in practice. And I think right. the GATT, a, a good in, or charitable interpretation of the GATT rules is that they recognize that. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that was that was very well put, Kevin. Very helpful. There's there's another issue that uh, you and I discussed offline that I wanted to get on tape, um, and it it relates to something Condi said towards the end of her uh, remarks. Uh, she made the observation that uh, in her judgment, the Soviet Union collapsed mainly because it could not keep pace with the U.S. and the Western powers um, in a technological sense, and and I think she meant to include in that commercial applications of technology. Uh, and um, you had a response to that offline. Why don't you, why don't you share that uh, with our audience? Yeah, I, I think it's, this is, a, I think, a really important message when you really move from the blackboard of economics to kind of the actual policy side of economics and, and try to study what actually happens in the world is, in economics, we, we usually motivate why free markets are good by the fact that they kind of maximize static gains from trade and things like that by uh, uh, equating the marginal benefit of the goods on the one hand with how much they cost on the other. And we kind of recognize that markets are really good at that, but we also recognize that they're imperfect at things like innovation and um, because people don't capture all the benefits and other reasons right. why. Or solving even externalities. We sort of think about the markets as not very, you know, not necessarily very adept at doing that. But when you look at actual outcomes in the world, what you tend to realize is the biggest advantage that markets seem to have as a practical matter is actually on many of the things that they're not perfect at. They're just far better than the next best alternative. And innovation and developing things that meet the needs of the population. You might say, well, geez, the inventor doesn't capture all the benefits, so why is he going to act in an optimal manner? And the answer is, he's probably not going to act exactly optimally, but the market system, which embeds the incentives to meet other people's needs, seems to do the best of any system we've been able to come up with in terms of developing new technologies, and in particular technologies that expand uh, and improve the living standards of the population. We haven't found a system anywhere close yet. And it's interesting because market economies seem to be the best, in some sense had the greatest comparative advantage in the words of economics, at the things that they probably have the least absolute advantage at. They're not, they're not perfect, but they're far better than the alternatives. Yeah, that's that's a really striking observation, and as you said at the outset, it doesn't. It's not what comes out of the blackboard economics that we start out with uh, in our textbooks. Um, in fact, we tend to start with the often people yeah. emphasize the opposite that you know exactly. the markets are imperfect at this, and therefore we need to find.
find an alternative system to handle those questions. And, you know, that we got to move away from a market economy because our market economies, after all, aren't perfect there. And the answer is probably that's the last place you want to move away. And, right. and, you know, and I think something like, you know, the Soviet Union is a very stark example of that. But, you know, more generally, I mean, we often talk about market failures, and they're often, you know, we're not saying there aren't market failures. It's just, you know, even in places where markets fail, markets fail, it's often hard to find things that'll do better. Um, and, right. And I, and I think the history kind of bears that out very strikingly. Well, that, that brings me to kind of the last point I wanted to hit, or set of points. And uh, again, it came up towards the end, very end of Condi's remarks. Um, I'll, I'll restate things first as questions in, in my language, maybe not the same as hers. But she raised the question, I think she called it a $64,000 question, of whether China can surpass the U.S. in a broad range of leading technologies if it sticks to a repressive authoritarian system. And a related question, which I'll add, is can China achieve comparable levels of per capita GDP to the U.S. and other Western countries? Um, by, by West, I mean market-oriented economies, if it sticks to its current system. And I... I suspect that the answer to both these questions is no, but I, but I can see that the answer is far from obvious. Um, but then I also want, and this is very much, I think, underscoring the concern that Condi expressed, but in a different way, and that is because China is so large in terms of um, population and, and it, it can become a global power or superpower, even if it never achieves the per capita output levels of of the leading democracies, even if it never achieves the same technological level. And, and that can present um, vulnerabilities and risks and dangers to the, the system that we've been, the global system we've been um, living with since, uh, since World War II. So I, I kind of leave that as a question, uh, open questions, big open questions. I don't know if you have thoughts about any of those variants of the questions I just posed, but well, I, I guess I would I, I would order them in the following way in terms of their likelihood of achieving success on the three dimensions you mentioned. I, I think the, the the economics of the system, as well as historical lessons we've learned, would say probably they have the greatest chance of doing the third one, which is becoming a power and exerting the influence around the world. Um, I think the history of, for example, the Soviet Union kind of points you in that direction. That obviously the right. Soviet Union, in spite of its problems, it had both technologically and even more so um, improving the standard of living of its population, um, nonetheless was able to exert an enormous amount of political influence and, and, and military might and influence on just many, many dimensions around the world. Um, and I would say China has definitely the best chance to do that. I think the second one uh, that they have a chance at, again, I think they're, they're hampered by their system a fair amount, but technology is one in which they can, you know, after all, they can invest an enormous amount and focus efforts there. They the, the won't be as efficient at doing that as, as probably the West will be or as creative at doing that, but given sufficient focus on trying to be a competitor on the technological front, um, they have a better chance of, you know, at least 
keeping close or gaining ground on that dimension. I think if it ultimately came to them at the forefront, they would probably stall simply because the incentives and in creativity inherent in a more market-focused economy are unlikely to be there. Um, that was certainly one of the problems the Soviet Union ran into. Uh, I think the, chan- the one where they have virtually no chance is on the standard of living of their population. Um, the kind of authoritarian regime they have that doesn't really provide a robust mechanism for the needs of the people to kind of drive the direction of the economy, I think it, it makes it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for them to succeed on that front without liberalizing both their markets as well as uh, their overall system. So pretty likely on, on influence, less likely, but not as distant on the technology, and I think not even close on the per capita uh, well, um, thanks, Kevin. Um, that's helpful. We, we may come back to this uh, issue in future podcasts uh, because it's a big one on the global scene. Um, I don't know if you've got any last words you want to share. Um, I, I do. I mean, I, I would get back to what I was struck by in all the discussions, which is the idea that mutually beneficial exchange which we usually think about in terms of the trade in goods and services is a very useful idea for thinking about trade or, or exchange at a, at a higher level or a more broad level like we talked about in terms of policies. And, and the idea that you know having a country that fosters trade and, and exchange among its population can be paralleled with having a worldwide system that allows, and this is what Condi stressed, allowed countries to find places where they could both benefit without having a central direction to say, hey, you must do this and you must do that. And it's really a market approach, but markets, remember, depend on having a, a, a structure that allows the market to function, and I think that's what she meant by a right. global commonwealth. It was so, a structure that allowed countries to look out for their own interests, but not do it in such a way that they always were beggar thy neighbor, but rather in a way that mutual gains for the parties. Right. So voluntary exchange is mutually beneficial. Yep, even when it happens <laughs> central, between countries. Exactly. <laughs> pretty pretty central message. If, if, we, if we succeeded in, um, in, uh, in driving that message home a bit and... Uh, enlarging its scope of application in this podcast, um, we've we, we done good. I agree. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. It's been fun. Look forward to the next one. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.